to Psalm 63 this morning. We're going to look together at that. I'd like to pray before we start. Forgotten Father, this morning you are uh, worth shouting to. You are uh, just amazing. This world we live in that's being sustained as we sit here today. You hold it all together. It's in you that we live and move and have our being. Father, every day our our lives should be uh, an act of worship. Just adoration of who you are. Forgive us for so many days when we're just oblivious or we're just wrapped up in our own world and we forget. This morning as we're in a special place here, we just uh, submit our lives to you. We pray for your spirit to teach us. And uh, you know what each of us needs this morning? Maybe there's some here that need the gospel. Need by faith to trust in you, to surrender their lives. Uh, For others, Lord, it's a tough time in life. And uh, Lord, wherever we are today, just speak to us in in Jesus' name. Amen. So this psalm says, David in the wilderness of Judah. Let's talk a little bit about David's life here. His life's in a really bad place. I don't know, it might be the worst time in David's life, and he had some bad days. Let's just think with me about the backstory here of this man who was a king. Things were different in those days. When you were a king and you made alliances with a nation, they would often give you uh, a gal, a relative of the royalty that was there as as a wife. And so when David is in Hebron, he has six wives that are given to him. One of them is especially noteworthy. Maka is the one that was given to him from the region of Geshur, which is just northeast of the Sea of Galilee. Talmai was her father, and she was one of David's wives. Out of that relationship came a name you may have heard of, probably one of the most handsome guys that was ever that ever walked the earth, his name was Absalom. He had a sister, her name was Tamar. You may have heard of that. And there's one other son of David that enters this story significantly. His name is Ammon. He was a half-brother, born of another wife to David, half-brother to Absalom. And so we, we see they set the stage for some events that had a lot to do with what's happening here in Psalm 63. Ammon was totally head over heels over his half-sister, Tamar. In fact, he was literally sick because he wanted this girl. And so one of his friends came and gave him some advice, some really bad advice. Sometimes your friends give you bad advice. This advice would cost Ammon his life. Here's the plan. He said, uh, Ammon, here's what you should do. Just pretend you're sick. Pretend you're really sick. And then ask David if he won't send Tamar in to take care of you. And then the whole stage is set. You'll be in your, you'll be in your room. 
just you and her, and, and you can make your move. So that's what Ammon did. Pretended he was sick. He was laying in bed. Asked his dad if Tamar, his half-sister, couldn't come. And she comes and he says, hey, would you please bake me some bread and cakes? And so she's doing that. And he says, hey, why don't you come over here and feed me some of those bread and cakes? So she does that. When she walks over, he grabs her. He says, I want you to lie with me. She says, nothing like this is done in all of Israel. Please, don't, don't do this. She said, talk to my father if, 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 if you're thinking this. But he would have none of it. He was overtaken with passion and lust. And he raped her, and then it says he hated her. David was furious. On the outside, he was furious, but on the, on the inside, this was his son. I mean, had it been some stranger, the solution would have been easy. The guy's head would have been off before the day was out, but this was his son, and this was his daughter. And so though David was furious on the outside, evidently from, there's nothing we can find that tells us that there was anything he did. Absalom, on the other hand, seemed somewhat placid on the outside, but inside there was a fire and a rage that was beginning to burn, which two years later would be culminated when they were shearing the sheep and Absalom came to his dad and said, hey, how about letting me invite all of the boys out, all my brothers out, half-brothers, everybody, for a feast. And so he did, and everybody got good and drunk, and then as Absalom had planned it, the servants came in and assassinated his brother, half-brother Ammon. Well, everybody scattered. Absalom went back to his home, Geshur, where his mom was from. He spent three years there and eventually made it back into Jerusalem, but his dad said, you can come to town, but we can't see each other. I can't look at your face. If you're a son, then you got a dad who doesn't want to see your face. It starts to grow a, a root of bitterness in there, and so it was with Absalom. He began to make connections. He was an attractive kid. He was very charming. He began to develop allegiances, and, and over a period of a few years, all of a sudden, one day, a servant came storming in and said, David, <clears throat> your son Absalom is pronouncing himself as the new king of Israel. I think you better get out of town because you may not survive the day. And so David heads out of town and, and he runs out and, and people knew where he would go. Interesting in 2 Samuel chapter 17, they're talking about this moment when Absalom pronounces himself as king and, and David runs and they're talking with Absalom. They're saying, you should, you should go after him. He says, you will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic. We see in, in chapter 17 in verses 8 and 9, it says this. It says that your father, speaking of David, is an expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, 
even now, he has hidden himself in one of the pits or some other place. So that is where David is. And so he writes, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you and my flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. And my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed. And meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. My right hand upholds you. For those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be apportioned for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. And all who swear by him shall exalt. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. So here's David. He is in a dry place. He is in a weary place. He is in a waterless kind of place. You know, in 1 Samuel, or 2 Samuel 12, verses 9 through 12, we have the, uh, the aftermath of this incident with Bathsheba. Many of you know the story. David was out on his rooftop one day and saw a woman and desired her and took her because he could, because he was king. And then had her husband murdered out in the battlefield. And we see in in 2 Samuel 12, verses 9 through 12, listen to what is said, because sometimes we look at this event and we think, you know what? David confessed and and God just kind of glossed over it and, and David went on with life. Listen to what it says. You did this secretly, or excuse me, this is verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. From your house, David, within your family, there is going to be dysfunction and discord and there is going to be death within your own household. And David is reaping the fruit of that. Here he is. He's out in some some pit out in the wilderness hiding out from his own son. He's maybe thinking back to that day when his, his daughter was raped and his His one son was killed. And now his other son is in Jerusalem and he set his tent up on top of the palace and he's sleeping with all of David's concubines in full view of everybody, declaring, I am the new king of Jerusalem. How would you like to be sitting out somewhere, out in the middle of some 
public land place, just sitting there wondering if you're going to live through the day and, and thinking back through all of these events, thinking about your own son who has now betrayed you. These are dry, weary, waterless places, and we all, on one level, know what those places are like. You know what those places are like. There's a funeral this week. Joe shared with us, there's now a widow and her kids, wondering how they're going to make it emotionally, how, how they're going to work through this. Kids with no dads. This, this is a dry place. This is a hard place. I talked to some parents a while back whose son just decided he was no longer going to accept the Christian faith. He's going to become an atheist. Dry, weary place. Christians who are battling with addiction and, and just can't seem to get on top of it. Somebody who's working in a secular environment, it just gets, the days get so old and it gets so long and, and just, just the godlessness of that environment, it's a dry and a weary place. The mom who has just endless lists of things to do and, and, and can never get it all done. A relationship's gone bad and you, you can't find a way to heal. And there's, there's all these different dry, weary places that we find ourselves in. And so this morning, I want to I share with you three things I see here David doing in those dry places. And uh, we would all do well to consider these things when we find ourselves in those places. Here's the first one. It's right off the bat. Oh, God, you are my God. And here's the first thing he does. Earnestly, I seek you. Earnestly, I seek you. That's the first thing that he does. And I just want to stress this because this is a reoccurring theme throughout the Bible. You see this? theme recurring over and over and over again, the importance of earnestly seeking after God. In Jeremiah, it says, you will seek me and find me. When? When you seek me with all your heart. With all your heart. We need to understand that God is interested, let me put it this way, God is not interested in half-hearted relationships. You know, when I was, I was thinking back to when I was dating my wife. And, I, you know, what if I'd called her up on a Monday night and said, you know what, I got the night off. I was thinking maybe we could spend the, the evening together. We could go out, to, go out to eat. And what if she said to me, oh, I don't know, the voice is on tonight. And I don't want to miss this episode. You know, that may have been the last time I called her. Because I'm looking for a different kind of relationship. I'm not looking for a relationship where a TV program is more important than me. God's looking for a relationship with you. Uh, you, can, you can believe that, but he's, he's not looking for a half-hearted one. In fact, he compares the kind of relationship as something as deep, probably deeper than marriage. And so... Throughout the Bible, we see this importance that God is looking for people whose hearts 
are, are devoted to him, people who are wholeheartedly seeking after him. Jesus spoke in parables, and they said, Jesus, why do you, why do you say these parables? Because they're kind of hard for people to understand. And Jesus said, I'm not interested in people who are just casual uh, about understanding. He said, in fact, I'd rather them not understand. I'm looking for people who want to seek and really are seeking, because if they really are seeking me, like the disciples, they'll come. And they'll say, Jesus, what what does this mean? Uh, Jesus said it like this. He said, here's the people that find me. The people that find me are not the people that are willing to sacrifice the most. They're not people that are willing to give up the most. The people that find me are people that realize who I am. And and what my kingdom is like. And Jesus said, I'm like a treasure in a field that you'd sell everything you had. You'd give it all up. Why? Because you have found something so valuable that you would abandon it all to pursue me. earnestly seeking God in those times. And by the way, let me just mention, here is where, here's where idolatry comes in. And you're guilty of it, and I'm guilty of it. We're getting dry. We're getting weary. And what do we do? We grab the remote. We go to the refrigerator. We go jump online and look at something we're not supposed to. All kinds of things to try and to try and take away that pain or that thirst or whatever it is. The answer is to earnestly seek God, as as we see here, David does in this situation, to realize that, that he is the one that is going to quench that thirst. To realize that everything else is like, you know, it'd be like if you're out at sea and you're, you're on one of these rafts and you're so thirsty and all around you is water, right? You can't drink that water because you know that that water will kill you. <clears throat> you know that that water will not solve your thirst. You got to have living, you got to have real water, Right? It's getting to that place where you realize all the water out there is like seawater, and if you're thirsty, there's only one source. That's to earnestly pursue him. <clears throat> so in verses 3 through 8, we start off, David is just, he's proclaiming he's in this dry and weary place. Then he talks about, I think we get some cues here as to what he does to, to earnestly seek after God. And if you're jotting things down, you can write these down. <clears throat> he says, in, uh, he starts off by saying, so I have looked upon you. So he looks upon God. He takes time to focus upon God. And he gazes upon God, it says, upon his glory <clears throat> and power in the sanctuary. What David is doing here, he's saying, I, I put myself in places where I can ponder just how amazingly beautiful God is and how powerful God is. He says, I, I praise you. He says, I bless you. He says, I, I lift up my hands to you. <clears throat> he says, my soul feasts on you. 
He says, I meditate. I remember. I sing. My soul clings to you. I, I rejoice. And so we see all these, all these words here that describe David's earnestly seeking after God. In those dry and waterless places. Whenever you're in a dry place, if, if you can get to a point where you actually believe in your heart that there is relief, there is water, only in your pursuit of, of your God. That's a powerful thing <clears throat> in a life. This week I was at a dinner and I, <clears throat> it was down at, I was over at the Hilton, really, really beautiful place <clears throat> over there. there it's an it's a organization called Leading with Power. Every second Tuesday of the month, they have a special speaker come in. So I went and got a cup of coffee, and I just went and sat, put it down at a table there <clears throat> uh, where there was an empty spot. Nobody was sitting at the table. And I went and got my food. I came back, and then the table had filled up, and I realized I was seated next to a, uh, a very tall uh, <clears throat> gentleman. Uh, and uh, what I realized was I was sitting next to the speaker, the special guest, or the, I wasn't sure if I should, I should be there. His name was Daryl Strawberry. Now, if you're into baseball, Daryl Strawberry is, in the 80s and 90s, he was probably without a doubt, the most feared home run hitter since Hank Aaron. I mean, he hit 280 home runs by, by age 29. He won uh, four, he was in four World Series wins. This guy was great. Or at least he looked great in and on the outside in the uniform, just remember when you see those people out there doing great things, you never know what's going on behind the scenes. His life was a mess. He was, uh, he sat out three different times for substance abuse while he was playing. He was, uh, his morals were in the pits. Between innings, he would have sex with women in the locker room. Between innings, during a game. And by the time uh, the early 2000s rolled around, he signed uh, contracts for 20 to $25 million. Back in 1990, that was a lot of money. By the time he was early 2000, near the end of his career, he was done with baseball. He was $3 million in debt. He didn't have a driver's license. That's what salt water will do to you. I met a gal, came to know Jesus, <clears throat> and uh, now he's a pastor. So here he is, 150 guys. About a third of them were new. And they came to hear him play. Uh, USA Today did an interview with him. They walked into his house. There's not a trophy in the house. There's not a plaque in the house. There's not a baseball in the house. Nothing to have to do with baseball. 
Daryl Strawberry said, that was something from the past. <clears throat> I have a new life now. It was kind of crazy. He, he got up and uh, he's talking. He kind of stepped forward. He said, I know a lot of you guys came here to hear about baseball. He said, I got to tell you something. He said, I don't even like baseball. That was a pretty amazing statement from a guy who's one of the best now and most famous baseball personalities in the last 40 years. I don't even like baseball. You know why? Because I met Jesus. He's a man who earnestly, who earnestly is seeking after God because he's found the treasure that he is. Here's the second thing. Remember his promises. Remember his promises. Verses 9 through 11. I mean, listen to these words. Here's a guy who's been chased out of town. He, he's, he's out in the wilderness. He's, is thrown, he's been dethroned, as it were. And this is what he says. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. How, how can David sit here uh, and, and, and say those kinds of things? Because, because he, he had a promise from God of God's faithfulness to him. And, and though things from the past weren't all that great and things in the present were perhaps even worse, he was, he was hoping in the promises of, of this God to him. Never forget, never forget that what is, whatever is happening now, there are better days ahead. The God of justice will make all things new. He will bring streams, as, as Joe shared last week, pools of refreshing into those hard places. I saw a sign this last week, and uh, <clears throat> I was going to take a picture of it, but it was, a, it was a sign on this end that said, the future, and over here it said the past, and there's an arrow pointing this way, and underneath it, it said, don't look back, that's not where you're going. Isn't that true? None of us gets to go back, none of us are going back, we're all going forward, so why not look into the future? Why not, Paul said, this one thing I do, forgetting what, what? lies behind, I press on towards the goal. What's the goal? Let me just read <clears throat> probably one of my, my favorite sections of Scripture. It's got to be the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. And Paul is writing, the guy that said, I don't focus on the past, I focus on the future. What was the future? Paul said it's a mystery. Here's a mystery. Chapter 1, he says that God is bringing all things under one head, even Christ. Are you looking forward to that? The day when all things, when, when we're led not by President Trump, but Jesus will be our king. He will be our leader. And so all things, 
all peoples, all leaders, all nations will be brought under one head, even Christ. And then in chapter 3, listen to this. He will bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And here it is. Through the church, through God's people, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal plan that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. So, so says Paul, I ask you, do not lose heart over this dry and weary and waterless place I'm in. Paul says, over what I am suffering for you, he's in prison, which is for your glory. Paul is saying, look, I'm in a dry place. I've been locked up in this miserable jail for a year, over a year now, and I'm I want you to know that I've got my eyes focused on what God is doing, on what's ahead. We see here that this dry place for David, David, it may be a result of something you have created from your past, but I want you to know it's not your future. So remember the promises. And then finally... I think my favorite phrase in this whole song is, remember, his steadfast love is better than life. Better than life? That's quite a statement. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God's love is better than life? Not, he's not saying God's love is better than the Packers or God's love is better than food or the, your favorite hobby or financial success or a job. No, he's saying God's love is better even than life itself. That's what Romans, I think that's what Romans 8.38 is saying. He says, for I'm sure that neither death nor what? Life. Nor angels, demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The American church has not done well with this one. We have said it, we say it, but I'm not sure we believe it. I think for many, the better life, the better life has become the measure of God's love. The better life has become the expectation of God's love. But David is saying that his love is better than life. That you can take my life, but I still have his love. That's better than life. That's what David is saying here. One of the phrases that I have just infused into my thoughts and I've said it many times here. It comes from that book, Disappointment with God by Phil Yancey. 
a man who had been through some horrific things. He was in a dry, weary, difficult place, and he made this comment, I don't confuse God with life. I don't confuse God with life. That's a statement worth remembering. I think we confuse them. Things happen in life. The first thing we do is question God's love. David said God's love is better than life. It's beyond life. It's bigger than life. You know, sometimes we portray God as someone who's orchestrating everything we do. God gets blamed for a lot of things. God certainly sees everything we do. He certainly allows everything we do. He's promised to work out all things for the good of those who are called according to his purpose, but we make decisions that affect our lives. God doesn't make them for us. David made a decision to ignore taking action when his own daughter was raped by his son, as far as we can tell. David chose to look lustfully at a married woman and act wickedly. You can't tell me that was God making that decision. My point is simply this. We make the messes. David is out in the Judean wilderness because of choices he had made, I believe, in regards to his son over the course of many years. Maybe you're in a mess like that. But David understands that God's love supersedes our messes and that God's love is therefore obviously better than life. His love is still there in the prison cell, in the middle of that divorce, in the middle of that porn addiction, in in the loss of a loved one. His love is there. And it's better than life. Everything in life changes. You may walk out of here and and your life can change in a moment. I was reading this week of parents who all of a sudden got a little quiet upstairs and they walked upstairs and there was a table shoved over by the window. The screen was taken out of the window and the mom's worst fears were confirmed as she looked out the window and, and saw her son laying on the ground 13 feet down from the second-story window. Medevaced, brain damage, left side pretty much paralyzed, stutters a lot. He's now 12. That was when he was three. And uh, I was just reading through the description, you know, asking why. God, why do little boys fall from windows? He writes, and I think, I, think this is a, I think this is a good attitude. Trish and I have done everything human possible to make our son well. We've spent tens of thousands of dollars on uninsured medical equipment. For the first three years after the accident, my wife and Eli literally spent 80% of their waking hours in therapy. We had faith that he would be healed. We knew it was going to happen. We kept praying and waiting. We waited and waited. We knew one day we'd be staying in front of a crowd saying, look what God has done. He's completely healed our son. That's not what happened. After three years of doing everything we could for our son, it was time to accept his current condition and choose to live life with disability. The disability was something we couldn't remove, and evidently God was choosing not to heal Eli. 
So, we had to burn our old scripts and look for what God could do with our new script. For the past five years, we've accepted life with disability. That doesn't mean I've stopped praying. Like any father, I'd give my right arm to see my son healed. But instead of getting discouraged and angry, I choose to look for what God can do. I choose to see God's steadfast love in the disappointments of life. Perhaps some of you here today need to burn an old script. It has a caused you to live with a diminished perception of God's love for you. And, and perhaps you need to decide to accept a new script. Uh, I think a script that David gives us here to, to remember that God's steadfast love is better than even life. I'm going to conclude this morning. This is just going to take two minutes. <clears throat> but I'd like us to bow together. And I, I want you to just listen to the, just the words of this psalm by Hernan uh, Fortega, who, uh, who is based on Psalm 63. And uh, we'll conclude with this this morning. Amen. Have a blessed day.